Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hi, everybody. I'm good. It's nice to be back here. We got a gray, chilly day in D.C., so I would say it's a perfect day for podcasting, you know? I know. It, it feels like San Francisco. It's uh, and, and, you know, China is on vacation until Thursday, for the mm. most part, for the uh, Labor Day holiday. So it's a bit quiet right now. It is, but, but lots of intern, lots of travel, lots of spending from the pictures. Well, and I mean, I would like to travel. This San Francisco weather is not great right now, uh, but it's a slow week. At the same time, we've got a lot of good topics to hit because we got some good email questions, and then we also got some good questions that came in through the Substack chat. And uh, if listeners have questions for the future. Send them to email at sharpchina.fm, as always, or you can pop up in Substack chat and we'll see them there. Um, but for today, let's start with a question from Preston, who says, It appears that China is increasingly limiting the extent of economic information available to Western firms. For instance, this wind situation. Are these reports accurate? And if so... Doesn't this have material implications for China's economy? And just to add a little context to his comment on the wind situation, I'll read this report from the Wall Street Journal. Access to one of the most crucial databases on China, Shanghai-based Wind Information Co., whose economic and financial data are widely used by analysts and investors both inside and outside the country, appears to be drying up. Following recent expansion of China's anti-espionage law aimed at fighting perceived foreign threats, many foreign think tanks, research firms, and other non-financial entities are finding they can't renew subscriptions to wind over what wind described as, quote, compliance issues, according to interviews with Western researchers and macroeconomic analysts. And one of the journal writers for that story summarized the state of affairs saying, quote, the black box gets blacker. So what do you think, Bill? I mean, obviously, this dovetails with some of what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks with the reports that consulting and corporate intelligence firms have had their offices raided by Chinese authorities. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts, so I'll let you take it whichever direction you like to start here. Uh, it's quite grim and disturbing. And so what we've seen is a constriction of information, both in terms of data sets, uh, like the wind, which is a sort of vaguely analogous to, say, a Bloomberg uh, mm. or um, kind of a Reuters type of information feed. And, you know, so far, it doesn't appear that its access has been cut off to, say, trading firms, big banks. But it appears to be, you know, again, this is a, a group of institutions and people who do their own research and their own analysis of, say, the Chinese economy are having their visibility constricted or limited. When you look at the other raids, so we've got uh, the, the Financial Times also had a story confirming today another company that was raided. So you've had Mintz Group, which does due diligence. You've had Bain Consulting. Uh, you've had the um, now uh, this expert network firm called CapVision. Expert networks are these companies where Institutional investors, hedge funds may want to sort of get more information about a particular company or particular market. 
particular products. And so they they want to talk to experts in those particular fields, but they have compliance issues. So if they're sort of US registered, they have compliance issues. So these expert networks crop up, they find the experts, they make sure the experts check all the boxes about how they're, you know, they're not giving inside information, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so let the clients, the institutional firms say, hey, we're we're playing by all the rules when it comes to compliance. And then they get to talk to these people. So this one firm called CapVision uh, was raided in the last uh, several months. And that I think is also, it's concerning. That one in particular is concerning for two reasons. One is, again, it's another sign of limiting independent third-party information about bits of the Chinese economy uh, or other other you know products, market segments in China. But it's also that that company in China, they would tend to have a lot of PRC-based experts, right? Because institutional investors would prefer to talk to people who are in the industries or in the sort of companies, whatever they're interested in. Right. And so if, for example, when that company was raided in Shanghai, then the security services then got the client lists or, or the expert list of PRC experts and or the companies had stored on site transcripts or audio of the interviews or the discussions that these experts had with institutional investors, that could then potentially lead to some pr- real problems for some of these individuals. Right. It's be, it, it, be used against them in a prosecution setting. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Because because people, you know, you think you're having a private conversation and people tend to say, you know, they're, they're getting paid a few hundred dollars, a thousand dollars an hour in some cases or more, uh, you know, and they may say things, they think they can say things, speak a little more freely. And then it turns out they said something that is somehow sensitive, even if it, weren't sensitive that it is now. You just don't exactly. know. Exactly. It goes back to what we were saying with the broadening language and definitions surrounding what constitutes a, a information related to national security. It's like right. a, as that's fungible and amorphous, it puts everybody in a pretty precarious spot. So it looks like, I mean, a few, there are a few threads going on here and it is not at all clear exactly what's going on. You know, some people say, oh, this is targeted American companies. This is some sort of a retaliation for America's pressure. Uh, I am not as convinced by that as I am as a sort of a much broader campaign to really control the information coming out of China and control how, and, and the Wall Street Journal had a story, I'm not sure if it's the one you quoted, it was one at the end of last week where they talked about from their sources, that part of the idea was to basically control how people talked about China. Mm-hmm. And, and so it has to do with, for example, there's an official data that comes out around the economy. And then, of course, people want to verify it, uh, independent analysts, independent research firms. You know, they don't necessarily believe the official data. And so they, they look for other alternative methods, alternative sources to uh, verify that data or contradict that data, build their own models, build their own sort of views of what's going on in the Chinese economy or specific companies, specific sectors. And the the party, the Communist Party doesn't like that. And I think they don't like it for two reasons. One, it, there is absolutely a domestic component because these independent research firms, they're the ones that talk about the Chinese economy and, and you know, maybe contradict the official sort of rosy pronouncements. Even if they're saying it overseas, that will oftentimes filter back into China and especially filter back into the more sophisticated financial circles. Okay. Right. And so it undercuts the messaging from the party about how the party's managing the economy, how the economy's doing. And two, of course, it influences what people, what investors, foreign investors think about China and the Chinese economy and the Chinese markets. The problem is that the party potentially can get away with this domestically because there are enough, you know, domestic PRC investment firms 
they still kind of have to do what right. they're they, told in many ways. They have to invest in the Chinese economy regardless. But, you know, there's a lot of risk investing overseas. There's a lot of risk investing in China. The risk reward ratio has changed. It is not like the go-go years of 5, 10, 15 years ago where you could sort of hold your nose, close your eyes, throw some money in China and probably make it, make, mm-hmm. make a nice return. It's much harder now. There's a lot more geopolitical risk. There's a lot more political risk. And then the Chinese government is now making it much harder to actually gather data information to let you build your investment thesis or to let you invest in an educated manner. And so yeah. for a lot of big institutional firms, investors overseas, you know, they have they have fiduciary responsibilities. You know, they 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 can't they can't invest like this. And so it's gonna lead to whether or not it leads to money exiting, it's, I think, definitely going to lead to a reduction in the flow of new money into China at a minimum, if not actually people pulling money out. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's just a big contradiction, because on the one hand, you know, after the 20th Party Congress, the end of COVID controls, the end of dynamic zero COVID, hey, China's back, we're open for business, we love foreign investors, you know, come on in, you know, we love, we're opening wider than we've ever been to the rest of the world, and please come invest. And then on the other hand, you know, they as we've talked about, I think, in a previous podcast and written by the newsletter, you know, one of the sort of themes that came out of the 20th Party Congress and subsequently is this idea of better coordinating development with security. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of those areas where security looks like it's trumping development. And so I think I think the attitude and I think, again, uh, Ling Ling Wei in her article, Wall Street Journal, sort of she, she talked about this is sort of people saying, well, they f- the, the authorities believe that foreigners just can't quit China. So they'll put up with it. They'll take it. And they'll still send us their money. And I think I think that's a miscalculation because the world has changed. Right. Well, and your point on the fiduciary aspect of all this, like there have been enough of these public incidents such that at some point it it has to become negligent to not take steps right. to mitigate you, corporate exposure. And to- you worked as a security. So, I mean, you understand like the risks that, say, a public company w- would take, w- you, they can no longer argue ignorance. Exactly. Like, there's just a lot of evidence that this is an incredibly volatile business environment, and it doesn't seem to be trending upward in terms of stability. And so, so in the other direction, in terms well, of at least in terms of information flows. And not only that, it's funny, because we've talked about these raids on each of the past two episodes. So on one hand, I worry about repeating ourselves. But on the other hand, each of the past two weeks, the news has gotten worse almost the minute we finish recording. Like, even in this like condensed period of time, it feels like there's been an escalation. And granted, these raids happened at different times. And so it's it's hard to sort of like spot a pattern over the last two weeks. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people in and around the business community. So I'm wondering, like, in conversations, are people surprised by how quickly this has sort of constricted out there and, and how dramatic this is? Because I think like, from a macro perspective, it's not terribly shocking that she is trying to s- sort of constrain information flow and taking some of these steps. But it does feel like it's happening faster than I would have guessed as an outsider. Yes, people are um, people are pretty surprised. I think so. For example, you know, last week after our podcast, I think maybe during our podcast, I mentioned I've been hearing about a couple other companies have been raided. One of them was this Capvision, which then you know the was reported on in the last couple of days. 
uh, last Thursday, I think, or the, the 28th. So maybe it was actually right after we recorded uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is not a body that's prone to sort of, um, I don't want to use the word hysteria, but prone to hyperbole, mm-hmm. um, put out a statement, said the U.S. Chamber statement on concerns over PRC investment climate that was primarily driven by these rates. Right. And, you know, by what they're hearing from their members, because people are freaked out. Right. And, and so it is completely flying in the face of the messaging that the Chinese side tried to push at Davos, for example, when the former vi- executive or former vice premier Liu He was there and had had a meal with the, the corporate chieftains from America who basically came out and said, hey, China's back. This is great. They're serious this time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they are serious, but maybe not in the way that like some of the big big investors thought they were. Right. Um, but but so so no people this is this is a really this is extremely concerning for a lot of corporations. And you know the other thing that we could talk about, I'm not sure we is, is the the group this 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 group called Safeguard Defenders that put out a report uh a, a couple reports around these sort of overseas police stations that effectively led to the crackdown we've been seeing in um, some countries around what they're calling these illegal police stations. Right. They had put out a report last night. Uh, they got a lot of pickup in the media about um, exit bans, which is effectively that foreigners who are in China are not allowed to leave for a variety of reasons. Uh, sometimes having to do with criminal issues, sometimes having to do with tax issues, sometimes to do with business disputes. Um, and it's actually it's a problem for a while. It's gotten worse. Yeah. Um, this is very separate than the the particular like raids on corporate intelligence due diligence firms. But it is a, I think, another thing, another issue that is of real concern to foreign executives. Totally. And it should be. I mean, how do you send talent to work in China if there's a risk that there's going to be some sort of exit ban imposed on them for nebulous reasons? Um, it's very hard. To, it's very hard to unwind. I mean, one thing I'll say back to the corporate intelligence stuff. So this morning, the, or maybe it was last night, the Financial Times had a story, which I mean, just go with the headline. This is the Financial Times, right? This is sort of the, you know, how many, how many people in C-suites and you know, on investment committees and large funds and banks read the Financial Times, basically everybody. The headline is China's men in black step up scrutiny of foreign corporate sleuths. Yep. Right. And so they go through, they go through the, the stuff around mints and Bain and then Capvision. What's interesting in here is, is they, for the first time, talk about what may have triggered the problems for Mintz Group and why the company was raided and had its, I think its employees, its PRC employees are still detained which is they're saying potentially they were working on stuff related to the uh, supply chain due diligence in Xinjiang, mm. which is a big no-no and which is something that the Chinese government, uh, they went after companies over a year ago that were doing it. And the National Security Day, which is April 15th every year, Tax Day, National Security Day, they both suck, you know, so like <laughs> yeah. convergence, right? Um, you know, every, every year now, there's a sort of a, a list put out of model or, or uh, example cases from the Ministry of State Security. And this year, one of them had to do with a company um, that wasn't named, but it was clear this, this company called Verite, which is a U.S.-based like supply chain auditor. Hmm. Um, and their offices have been raided in China. Uh, some of their folks were detained. And it was because they were doing work around Xinjiang and so and the Xinjiang supply chain. And so they so so the Chinese government has been very clear that they have effectively destroyed all independent supply chain verification, which again, makes it really difficult for companies to then source from China or, for example, specifically source from Xinjiang because of 
like the the Uyghur Forced Labor Act Protection Act in the U.S., where you have to actually show that you're, you know, you have to, you have to demonstrate that your what you're buying is not somehow tainted by uh, supply chain That's problems. Right, yeah, in China Uyghurs, and so they're make so, so the Chinese government thinks they're like, okay, we're gonna, you know, we don't want you nosing around supply chain, so we're gonna shut you down. But then that makes it really hard for large, sophisticated multinational companies. Yeah, well, and the other thought I had, and this is maybe naive, but it's particularly chilling to follow this as an outsider and basically an American who's never done business in China and had to worry about CPC oversight or anything. But you have these stories of raids that basically just sit out there for weeks without much detail added because all of these companies are really careful about not making the situation even worse with Chinese authorities. And um, it just creates this sort of cycle of paranoia that is really grim to watch, again, from thousands and thousands of miles away. I just sort of can't believe that's the reality on the ground. Yeah, I think the folks in this industry talk um, and are aware of these issues. And I think they are, um, uh, again, this is this is an industry like specifically like corporate investigation, due diligence. It's always been under scrutiny. Mm hmm. Excuse me, there have been raids in the past. There have occasionally been arrests of people. There was a firm in Shanghai a few years ago. Uh, the the principal and his wife, I forget her name. His name is Peter Humphreys. You know, he ended up in, in jail for, I think, a couple of years uh, over an investigation. It was it was a very um, messy case involving um, big pharmaceutical company, allegations of corruption, someone very connected. Yeah. Um, but it was also one of those things where... This is why it was a bit surprising to say Mints got in trouble just because they were they tended to be uh, pretty careful given their background and given the some of the background of their executives and their sort of belief that they understood where the red lines were. What's problem is the, is the red lines have all moved. And, and like, for example, in the Financial Times article, someone said that basically they're saying how they used to think they knew what the red lines were. But now, quote, the government has gone further and now, quote, drawn a whole web of bright lines that you can very easily get entangled in. And so they're just making it much they're constricting the ability of these companies to operate. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, again, when you're on the Chinese side and everything is national security as it is in Xi's China, you can understand why they want to crack down on this in, in sort of independent sources of information, especially when it involves foreigners. And in some cases, because of like, if it involves data that is being sent overseas, well, then, you know, you, you have various laws and regulations now governing that data and how it can travel overseas that potentially, like if you're a wind or some of these companies, you know, your default position is going to be, I'm going to cut off that data to foreigners until I figure out whether totally. or not it's safe. It, that's what right? the chilling effect is, is ultimately, if you're a wind, it's like, well, better safe than sorry, as opposed to having our offices raided. Right. And, and we had this situation a couple months ago where all of a sudden a bunch of bond data disappeared and it freaked out you know, the bond market, especially foreign investors who were like, uh, 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 where's the data? Right. And, and the, and then it came back on and people, there was a lot, there were a lot of complaints. It came back on a week or so later, and maybe it was about sort of this data security law and some compliance issues. It wasn't exactly clear really what was going on. There are a couple different sort of claims in the Chinese media, Yeah, but the data came back. But again, it was a it was sort of a, a a sign once again that China, in many ways, is like acting like a frontier market in terms of information flows. Well, and right? in terms of lack of clarity, like, do you know what I mean? Because I, I 
the step to raid a firm like Mints or Bain Consulting, like that's a pretty dramatic move. And so that news hits. And as an American news consumer, I'm thinking, wow, this is a big deal. I'm sure in a couple of days, there'll be some big takeout feature that talks about why it happened, what it was like on the ground, where the companies are going from here. And that just doesn't happen. It's like you get whispers in Financial Times pieces, but it's not really clear exactly like what the basis was, what it was like for the employees who were there. And all of that is just sort of a reminder of the restrictions that are being imposed by Xi. No, that's right. And it's also just a, in this kind of a situation, if you're the, if you're the company, the belief is it's much better to stay quiet and try and work it out. Yeah. And I think, I think like the Mince guys, the Mince guys went public very quickly that our office was raided and some of our employees were detained and then they stopped talking. Right. Because I think they, they're, they figured they get it out there. But now they're trying to walk it back and figure out some way to sort of get their people released. Yeah, exactly. Right? At, other... at a certain point, you're just working on behalf right. of your people and, on the and ground. And so far, there. Mints, of all these reports, Mints is the only company that has actually had people detained, at least what, what has been reported. Yep. Um, the other ones have just said, and we don't know like what you know, computers taken, phones taken, what files were taken. I think, I think the more sophisticated firms now uh, store all the data in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And so that if they come take your computers, if you, you can remotely just disable access and they can't actually get the data, that's expensive, I think. And so for a lot of smaller firms, maybe they're not there yet. But increasingly, it's a huge risk to store any data on your equipment in China. Yeah. Well, a semi-related question, and it, it dovetails with the Safeguard Defenders report that you mentioned earlier. We'll put a link to that report in the show notes. Um, Kevin asks, what are your thoughts on capital and talent flight from China, particularly to Singapore? I've heard you mention it now and then on the podcast, and I live in Singapore and certainly see the huge inflow of rich Chinese here. Now that China has reopened, do you think that'll slow down? And if it doesn't, do you think China will try to act on it? What tools do they have? Could they introduce something akin to FATCA that would get jurisdictions like Singapore to cooperate in sharing financial information of PRC nationals abroad. So um, for anyone unaware, FATCA refers to the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. But what do you think of that question, Bill? Because the the exit ban report um, caught me by surprise this week. Um, well, the exit ban, you know, it's not new. Uh, and you know, this is just, it's getting more attention. This report will get it more attention. Uh, it, it may be that there are more foreigners caught up than we'd heard about before. Um, mm-hmm. again, it's something that a lot of people tend to not talk about because they're trying to resolve it. Um, in terms of Singapore, I mean, I would be surprised if Singapore were to, were be willing to enter into any sort of mechanism to share financial data, because that would seem to be, uh, destroy their business model, which is basically becoming this financial center in Asia where people feel like it's safe to park their money. Okay. Um, and, you know, clearly there's a lot of money that's a lot of people have come in from China that the data is the Singaporeans, they don't seem to want to release the data or they don't, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a lot from pretty much every account and you see it in all sorts of indicators, including rents. Uh, the fact that they just increased the tax, the home Housing purchase tax uh, for foreigners from 30% to 60%. 
and which foreigners are the ones mostly buying property in yep. Singapore, right? Um, but in terms of, you know, in terms of the people who could afford to move to Singapore and potentially invest the amount needed to get uh, the right kinds of visas, permanent residence, maybe a path to a passport, uh, at that level, I don't think anything that's happened in the last two or three months gives confidence that it's safe to change their plans. Right. And you look at, for example, the the banker from China Renaissance Balfan, who has now been out of contact since February. So we're coming up on three months. Yep. And he, you know, the Financial Times reported that he was in the process of moving assets to Singapore. Uh, obviously, maybe maybe some of the assets got there. He didn't get there himself. Uh, and it's unclear when he'll ever have a chance again to do that. Um, and so I think that the reasons that people were freaked out and the reasons that people thought they should be hedging mm-hmm. uh, certainly don't look like they've changed. Right. I mean, there's away. a lot of talent and capital has fled to Singapore over the last several years. And in terms of actions China would take, would it just be on sort of a case by case basis or are, are they not? necessarily concerned if the top 1% of the top 1% end up living in Singapore? No, I think that I think it's concerning. Um, I I think the Singaporeans are, they're smart. They understand the PRC. Uh, they do not take kindly to any sort of external foreign attempts at interference or transnational um law enforcement activities. So I mm. think that if if the PRC were to try and, you know, send people to Singapore to get people to come back and they weren't doing it above board, I think they would be very quickly, it's a small place, they'd be very quickly um, sent back to China and told to stop screwing around. Yeah. Um, specific, are there any specific individuals the PRC wants who are now in Singapore? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a... Um, there certainly may be individual cases, but I, I don't know from a, like a sort of a broader policy perspective. I mean, Singapore, you know, Singapore is benefiting too from what happens has happened in Hong Kong. And so they have to be careful that they um, don't do things that then make people believe that actually our money isn't safe here either. I think that they would be, they're very, be very reticent to do that. Interesting. Okay. Well, to move from a fairly grim state of affairs of, across uh, the information environment and just general rising paranoia across foreign business in, in China, we did get a little bit of good news after we recorded last week. After roughly five months of speculation on this podcast and whispers throughout the media from anonymous sources, She finally called Zelensky last week, so I'll read from the Financial Times. In an almost hour-long telephone call that Ukraine's president described as, quote, long and meaningful, she told Zelensky that he would send a special representative to talk to, quote, all parties, end quote, to seek a political settlement of the war, according to China's foreign ministry. Dialogue and negotiation are the only way forward, she added. But a readout of the call from Zelensky's office avoided any rep- any reference to negotiation and instead, quote, expressed hope for China's active participation in efforts to restore peace. So, Bill, what did you think of the call and the characterizations coming from both sides on the way out of that exchange? 
Uh, so no, it, it's good they talked. It, it's interesting, sort of the questions of why, why now, um, and we don't have a, a great answer about about why exactly now. I mean, there are various theories uh, from on the eve of this sort of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Was this uh, a way to maybe help Russia by potentially thinking that maybe the Ukrainians will slow down? Mm. Probably not. But the, this is, again, one of the ideas that's thrown out there. Another was that the ambassador, the ambassador to France, who made those crazy comments about the former Soviet states don't have real sovereignty, um, that, that somehow that, that caused such a ruckus in Europe that it forced Xi's hand and made him call sort of earlier than, than perhaps he wanted to. That was my uh, first question, because it, it was such a dire situation that, that maybe it sent everybody into overdrive in terms of PR management. But who knows? Uh, uh, again, maybe uh, bad for Ambassador Liu, if that's the case, because you never want to be the guy who forces the emperor's timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that won't end well if that's the case. And, you know, we, we may never know if that's the case and whether or not Lou gets in trouble for his comments. It's not something we'd probably know quickly. Um, if he does, he'll probably have some issue. You know, maybe he'll, he'll get called back for some meeting and then, I don't know, he'll have, I mean, you can always find corruption or personal lifestyle issues with people if you want to. Uh, another is just that in the wake of the various, um, you know, the various, you know, European leaders visits to, to Beijing, and I think all of them made clear that they wanted China to do something um, that the Chinese side decided this was the time to basically, uh, you know, and the EU is starting the strategic review. I think they were starting it the day he called. They were starting this, this set of meetings to talk about sort of building a new strategy for China. This was a way to sort of get ahead of the, you know, because I think it, it, I think at least uh, like von der Leyen, I believe Macron um anyway several of the eu visitors all said they would hope that she would call zelensky mm-hmm. so this may have been basically throwing them a bone to say look we are serious we're trying to resolve this um it did also coincide with the anniversary of the chernobyl accident nuclear power plant accident i think it's the crazy i think the 37th anniversary and the the ukraine uh announced a new ambassador to the prc that day okay. so there was sort of potentially there's always the simple answer well this just made sense because that was the you know it's just the timing timing aligned. We don't know. I mean, I think a couple of the interesting outcomes of the call. One, really, the most interesting is beyond the fact that she called was just that the Chinese side have said they've they're appointing a special envoy to basically shuttle around various capitals to try and find some sort of a solution. And this their special envoy um, is a former ambassador named Li Hui who was in Moscow for many years. He's like a Russia Soviet expert um, and. You know, he's someone who's known known quantity of the Russians, known quantity of the Putin. Um, and so he's obviously very well steeped in the issues and the history. Uh, it's interesting that they didn't pick someone who was, had a European bent. Mm. You know, and the readout from the Zelensky call, you know, the Ukrainian side readout. I mean, again, this is where it's hard to be optimistic because, you know, Zelensky is very clear in his readout. If he says that we did not start this war, but we have to restore the sovereignty and territorial integrity integrity of our country within the internationally recognized borders of 1991, including Crimea. Right. And so. So he doesn't sound all that ready to, to compromise. Right. And, and, and so, you know, and then again, the China, you know, the Chinese side that got the deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, she's very much in sort of, we have the way to peace in contrast to the warmongering, profiteering U.S., you know, that's always adding fuel to the fire. And so this is a, this is, again, 
lets Xi present himself and present China as trying to be a peacemaker. Yeah, which on some level they have to do it, it like on the last show I was highlighting the incentives that China has to slow play any sort of peace agreement and that's still where I lean. But it's also fair to say that there are real reputational incentives for China to preserve PRC standing in Europe. And if if they could force Russia to compromise and end the fighting, that would go a long way toward accomplishing that goal. And And Europe is such a huge export market for them that like at least sort of maintaining a veneer of of neutrality is a smart business decision, if nothing else. And so I, I, right. I'm not surprised. I think the, the reason it, the Zelensky call was interesting is for so many months, it was such an obvious, it, 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 was, it was like an easy win. It would have been exactly like, a, like right? a, the fact that they weren't picking up the phone right. was really the, the only reason it became significant because so it's why now like, that that's then like, like, like why now? I mean, you know, you had the foreign minister or the, the head of the, 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 the top PRC diplomat would speak with the U- Ukraine foreign minister, but the leader to leader talk. And so again, coming on the heels of C's visit to Moscow, why now? And we don't have a great answer for that. And it is interesting. Um, but yeah, you'd think, I mean, I think they really, I think they're, they're, I, I believe that there was, there is a lot of concern about how Europe is sort of, you know, the Chinese side keeps wanting to have the sort of Europe strategic autonomy, you know, don't follow the U.S., mm-hmm. be the, you know, sort of this, this three poles kind of idea, U.S., China, Europe, EU, and that there was this real, the realization that, the war, the Russian invasion, and the Chinese straddle where she's head is basically in Putin's lap um, is making the uh, really souring the mood in the EU. Yeah, right. It's it's hard to make the case that you should cooperate with China and meet them halfway when they're like arm in arm with Vladimir Putin talking right. about changes that we haven't seen in 100 years and everything else. Um, right. I mean, if there were ever a compromise, I still go back to the idea that you mentioned in the fall where awarding reconstruction bids to Chinese companies could prevent Russia from reinvading or breaking the. Yeah, no, that was not I was I was channeling. That was not my idea. That was Alexander Gabuyev's, um the Carnegie suit. That was his idea. It was basically I mean, one was, OK, the Chinese. You know the war maybe something may be coming along when the Chinese, you know, the Chinese will not want to lose out on reconstruction money right. and contracts at the end of the war. Um, and so they have to figure out how to make the straddle enough that they they don't piss off Ukraine so much that they don't get any contracts. But then it was like, yeah, have the have the Chinese help rebuild, have the Chinese send workers, and then that would mean that Putin would be much less likely to attack again. Because exactly. then he'd be killing, he'd be destroying Chinese investments and potentially killing Chinese nationals. Right, and and which I think makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. We have no way to prove it, but it right. feels true, and I support it as a galaxy brain solution to what has been a, a tragedy over the last year and a half here. So hopefully, one way or another, um, we can get to a ceasefire compromise. I am with you that I'm not holding my breath on China sort of spearheading all of that, but. We'll see. At least there's now been that call. Did you have any other thoughts on the call or should we keep moving here? Uh, there's a, um, I could, I'll send you a little, we can put it in the show notes. There's a, there's a, just a good link 
a good article by the China Media Project, um, which I do some work with, I help support, and I run a monthly report from them. And they had an article today talking a bit about this call on the language and how on the Chinese side, the readout is just full of you know CCP jargon and CCP propaganda terms like the like the four what is it like the four shoulds and the and the three things. Let me pull it up the the, the like the, the X number of things to think about and blah, 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 which of course to the Ukrainians are like, what? But, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's because it's sort of part of this, um, here, I'll just read it and then we'll have a link in the show notes. But um, in his readout, she said, you know, we've success, we have successively proposed the four shoulds, the four togethers and the three points for consideration. Right. Without, without, Elaborating, and then of course you're supposed <laughs> to know what those are. As if Zelensky was like pouring over the 20th Party Congress documents and has been so, well versed. So in I this will read along. them just just so we know. At least for the four shoulds are. Um, how do I not know them? Oh, here it is. Okay, yeah, you so should know them. God, I should bad know them job them. by Bill here. Wow, <laughs> the sovereignty and territorial integrity of nations should be respected. The purposes and principles of the UN Charter should be respected. All countries' legitimate security concerns should be taken into account and every effort beneficial to the peaceful resolution of the crisis should be supported. Now, the third should around every country's legitimate security concerns is also about, well, Russia's concerned about NATO expansion. Mm. So they have, a, so the, the Chinese are saying they have this legitimate security concern, call it a SOP, whatever, that, that is something that I think the Russians would agree with. Right. Um, so anyway, we'll we'll put a link to this article. You can read it, but it's just an interesting way of sort of trying to show how the Chinese are talking and sort of messaging the rest of the world. It's very impenetrable. Yeah, in a lot of ways, and in, in ways that it you know once again, China's so important. China's so big. China's so connected to the, the entire world, both politically, geopolitically, uh, economically, and yet it's getting harder to figure out what the hell's going on it's crazy yep well and, and it is not i mean people are like oh that's great you're you know your newsletter's weird no it's I, <laughs> it's like, hard business is much better when it's not so hard and yeah. people are much more much happier and things are going much better it it is really worrisome on a whole bunch of levels right and it's interesting for me to trace the devolving state of affairs with all of this in terms of the perspectives like people who have been watching this space like you i mean you're generally pretty measured and your concern over what the last three or four months have looked like is really notable to me it just in terms of like how this all fits in the broader context of the story like people who are not prone to hysterics are reacting to this like whoa everyone pay attention to to what exactly is happening here no, in, in the last few weeks, the, these various raids, the constriction of information has um, really started to worry a lot of people. Even folks who are more bullish or kind of more sort of positive on the PRC uh, publicly, mm-hmm. privately, this is a wake up call. This is this is a very this is a very non constructive time for the PRC in the minds of a lot of people that they think they want to woo or think they want to have investing in their country. Yeah. It's and and it is and you know again it goes back to well what what is going on here are you know just like the information flows about you know the information about China is being constricted are the information flows up to the top of the party specifically Xi are they constricted is he getting mm-hmm. bad information or does he not care 
or does he does he honestly believe that it doesn't matter we can we can you know basically beat the foreigners however we want and they're still going to come and invest because we're so big right which, which is, has worked uh, it's worked in the past it's true i understand where that idea would come yeah, from they, they've but been conditioned to think that it works because it has worked it's such a step change though from where things were 10 years ago that i think as you said at the top it's pretty naive maybe naive isn't the right word but it's just not how i would expect the rest it, of the world not to a, react to wh- it's where not a recognition stand. of of how things have changed. And it really is not a recognition of how the risk reward calculation around China has changed. Because again, with the, you know, even before COVID, but especially with COVID and this, the economic troubles and the slowdown and the, the the battering of parts of the private sector and, you know, the big internet companies and the, the destruction of like the entire private education sector overnight that erased billions of dollars of market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are like, this is not an easy market. There's a lot more risk here than we realize. And now, you're making it even harder to figure out what the heck's going on. It's like, you know, for a lot of folks, it's like, I don't need the hassle. Right. There are other opportunities in the world. And, and we talked about it last week where the lack of information creates a vacuum around the world that can be filled by all sorts of different clowns with their yeah. own agendas. And no, so that's, it's, it's, it's it, not good. Everyone's losing in every aspect of this story, um, but except for the except for the men in black, the men in black true. have a much bigger mandate. <laughs> They've right? never been more central. Yeah, um, Joel says I'd love to hear some discussion of the state and outlook of India and Pakistan's relations with China. I saw that's some a whole. That's multiple books. Right? I was going to say um, <laughs> it's very broad. He says I saw some reports about the tensions across the India-China border regions, and then there was also the news this week about a closer relationship between Pakistan and China, and Pakistan agreeing to buy Russian energy in yuan. So, um, an abbreviated answer. Where would you start from that prompt? Well, I mean, the Russia, Russia, uh, sorry, China and India went, went to war in the early 60s over these contested border areas. Um, they are still contested. They had a, you know, a pretty nasty fight on the border a couple of years ago. Um, they have an agreement where they don't actually, when they run into each other on the, this contested border areas, they're not actually armed. So they, you know, people were beaten to death with clubs and pushed off cliffs mm. and drowned in the, the raging um, Tibetan Plateau water, uh, river. Um, it's very, it's very brutal. The Chinese have been uh, building up a ton of infrastructure on their side of the border of the contested border. Uh, the Indians are following, but they're not as efficient or well-resourced as the uh, PLA is. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, the PRC defense minister was in India the last few days for this. Um, I guess it was, a, I think it was a, as a defense minister's meeting for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And they met and they had a discussion. And, you know, the Indian side, and again, this is an entire, like, separate podcasts and there's some really good people. Um, I'm, I'm not the expert to talk about the PRC India border issues, but just from this meeting, the Indian side basically saying, look, the, the Chinese are violating their various agreements on the border and that their relations can't really improve until uh, both sides, you know, the Chinese go back to respecting those agreements. Mm-hmm. And that isn't, you know, of course the Chinese blame the Indians. So that's not going to happen. Um, the Pakistan, India, China triangle is also very complicated. The, you know, the Chinese have a lot of money invested in loan to Pakistan. They're trying to build a lot of infrastructure. They've also been subject to several terrorist attacks by, um, militants in parts of Pakistan who are unhappy with, um, 
sort of any foreign investment and unhappy specifically with the Chinese. Okay. Uh, thanks to the Air Force child who leaked all the all the um, documents on the Discord. The, I don't know if you saw a couple of days ago, the Washington Post had a story about sort of the global South and China and the U.S. And they actually talk about a memo in, in one of the stolen intelligence reports that this person posted Discord. Uh, it quotes Pakistan's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs uh, saying, and of course, somehow the U.S. sort of has a copy of her memo, you know, right? Guess, <laughs> right? Reading her email, um, basically saying, "Good that job, it, intelligence." Yeah, I'll that, that she argued argued in March that her country can quote no longer try to maintain a middle ground between China and the United States. Mm. Um, uh, said the uh, the instinct to preserve Pakistan's partnership with the U.S. would ultimately sacrifice the full benefits of what she deemed the country's real strategic partnership with China. Interesting. Um, and, and so that, you know... And they're part of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Just in terms right. of infrastructure and they, you know, they investment. Have infrastructure, the big port at Gwadar. I mean, it, but, you know, and then you've got the India-Pakistan relationship and it's, you know, very distrustful and, you know, lots of... just It's just, it's a, it's a, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I mean, but the Pakistan, also the economy's a mess and they're totally in hock to the PRC. Yeah. And well, so, you know, and, and not to complicate it further, but there was a column at Foreign Affairs that I read earlier this week talking about the U.S. intentions with India and why what we're trying to do with them is probably not going to work, where there's been a lot of outreach and ambitious initiatives launched, all sort of premised on the assumption that if things get really bad with China, India will join the U.S. in, in fighting them. And um, and and combating them in in a number of different respects, and basically the way the column explained it, and I could put it in the show notes, is that the expectations of India are misplaced on that front, where it, it, they're not going to get involved in any direct confrontation with Beijing that doesn't directly threaten what they're trying to do and their and India's own national security. No, that's I think that's right. That was by Ashley Tellis, right? That was in yep. Foreign Affairs, and. Um... I think, you know, one of the things too, like we've got this whole sort of concept of the quad, which originally started with Abe in Japan and Kevin Rudd when he was prime minister of Australia. It's back again, right? It's the US, Australia, India, and Japan. And, you know, early on a few years ago, you know, Modi and she were seemed to be sort of friendly. And apparently, and at least one of the meetings, basically, Modi effectively told she something along the lines of, you know, we'll slow walk the quad. Mm. Um, but then you have this clash at uh, um, this Galwan, this place on the border, up for 4,500, 5,000 meters thereabouts, where dozens of Indian and Chinese troops died. Yeah. Um, the official numbers, you know, it's a little, I think the Chinese understated it. But anyway, and that and basically that forced Modi's hand because. They couldn't. You know, Indian India Indian media is pretty controlled, and um, the the Indian side has been trying to. I think the Modi administration is try has tried to sort of tamp down concerns or, or pressure about China to some extent, um, but like this this clash basically forced the Indians' hand and forced them to take a tougher tougher. Another case China. of the PRC being its own worst enemy. Yeah, and, and so stage. and then of course it's like what really happened, and you know the the PRC said the, the the PLA says oh the Indians did it, the Indians say the Chinese did it. Um, you know it's it's just and again it was like hand to hand combat. It was terrible. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, because I think what Washington is hoping is that India can sort of counterbalance the Chinese influence in the region. Yeah, no, the Indian, the Indians will, I mean, the Indians will talk about strategic economy, the autonomy. The Indians will do what the Indians want to do, and they'll figure out, I think, a way to um, sort of maximize their benefit as they should, and they're big enough that they can do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're certainly... Until the, you know, and I think it's very unlikely there ever will be, but until there's a resolution, if you have the border disputes with China, it's hard to see a particularly constructive relationship. And then you have um, all the um, the hydropower projects in Tibet uh, that are effectively, you know, damming rivers that flow in India. Is and, that and, a, a direct provocation or is it just? No, I mean, it's, it's just, it just has the potential to cause longer term significant problems. Yeah. If, you know, if the water resources start uh, start to diminish, the Chinese decide to control them more. I mean, there, there's just a lot of issues that don't seem likely to lend to an improvement in the India-China relationship. And then you've got, of course, I mean, it's something that I think the, the Ashley Tellis article talked about, other people have written about it, is, you know, the Chinese, the PLA Navy is getting pretty active in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a report last month of uh, potentially uh, – the Chinese have um, are setting up a, a like a surveillance site on one of the an island off of Myanmar, which is effectively really to surveil the Indian Ocean and see what the Indian Navy's up to. Um, you know, there's just it's just it's it's sort of strategic competition in a way is all over the place, and it's it's also just leading to um, one of those things that leads to more arms races. Yes, and what's interesting with India is India historically has relied a lot on Russian weaponry. And for lots of reasons, including that the, a lot of the Russian weaponry didn't work well, and also they don't have any left, or they don't have enough left to sell to India, the Indians have to find alternative suppliers. And the U.S., of course, is like, "Hey, we, hey, we're happy. Let to me do open it. my trench coat. <laughs> we got all these weapons." You but know? one and, of the things that Ashley Trellis was writing about is that our weapons are so expensive that right. it's cost prohibitive in some respects. Um, but. Yeah, I, I think that was a very good answer in lieu of like a 10 hour podcast discussing the <laughs> China, Pakistan, India relationship. Um, it's a good rebound for you after forgetting the four shoulds. So, so uh, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Mem- I'm going to write them a thousand times each. Please the, do. Uh... Please do. That's this is your week off. I think that's a great exercise for you. Um <laughs> One uh, one question at the end. A, a few weeks ago, I read an essay from David Wallace Wells writing in the New York Times, and it, it included this sentence. He says, is it truly a new Cold War, for instance, if the vast majority of our phones, most of what goes into our solar panels and a critical share of antibiotics used by Americans are produced in China, despite growing tensions between Washington and Beijing? And downstream from that question that he's asking as much as we hear about economic decoupling and deglobalization i get the sense that we've really only scratched the surface and there's still a lot of overlap and symbiosis between the us and china economies so i was just wondering what are some of the areas where we're furthest away from decoupling and this is another one could be a five to 10 hour podcast. So I'm just wondering what, what comes to mind when you hear the question? Apple. Apple. Um, but again, you know, Apple, I think people will be surprised by how much Apple moves out of China in the next couple of years. I think they're quiet. I think they're much more focused now than they were even a year ago 
um, about de-risking. You know, the new term is de-risking, not decoupling, right? Yep. Um, but even if Apple moves a lot of production to India, Vietnam, their Chinese suppliers follow. So there's still there's still a lot of China reliance. Um, yeah, and it's just it's odd being in D.C. You'll hear all these people talking at cocktail parties and stuff about how decoupling is inevitable and it's already underway. But then there are these massive exceptions to the rule. And Apple's a great example where, yeah. like, I've talked about it with Ben and said, oh, look, so they're making iPhones in India now. And then every component of the iPhone is still manufactured in China. So it's like, how how decoupled are you really in that context? Yeah. No, it's it's it's. I think a managed decoupling is unrealistic, right? I think, you know, the only way that things really decouple is if there's some sort of sharp break, which would be a disaster for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, as we talked about earlier around sort of the data stuff, you know, companies are much more aware of the risks. And, you know, especially big public companies can no longer pretend that they don't need to start hedging and, trying to find ways to mitigate some of their or reduce some of their supply chain risk when it comes to China. Right. Um, that takes time. That takes money. And also as companies are doing it, they're not going to talk about it. Talk about it. They're going to say, Hey, Shanghai government, I'm leaving. I'm setting up in <laughs> Vietnam. Right. They're going to like, they're going to say, we love China. China's great. China's great. And then one day they're going to wake up and, you know, a bunch of their new stuff is now, or, or their new investment went to Vietnam. They're, they have no incentive to rub it in the PRC government's face. I've wondered that about Apple. And again, I don't want to make this strictly about Apple, but they have incentive to broadcast to international investors and certainly people in the US that they are de-risking and spreading their supply chains around. But I wonder how that plays with the PRC and what that process looks like. I think it's probably very complicated. Yeah. Because it's like there's a Bloomberg article about it uh, every couple of weeks, what, what yeah. Apple's trying to do in India and, and their movements around the world. And yeah, I, I, the backroom conversations. You know, meanwhile, Tesla is basically a Chinese company with a U.S. sales operation, right? I mean, that's the knock. But that's, you know, they keep investing more into China and they've, they've been incredibly successful both in terms of selling in the Chinese market, but now increasingly exporting cars made in China to the rest of the world. Right. One of the things that's going to be interesting is what happens as more developed markets start seeing a large, a, a significant surge of uh, imports of Chinese EVs mm-hmm. and how they deal with them. And especially countries like, like here in the US or Germany, um, when the Chinese come in with really good cars, I was going to say a lot of a lot like of their cheap, green technology is good. really really good. Yeah. So what would the concern be in the U.S. Basically, just con- well, general I mean, you concern. Remember, about- maybe you're 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 too young. You don't remember Japan, right? But you remember the concern about the sort of the the, the U.S. car industry being swamped by Japanese imports, and yep. then you know forced the Japanese to set up factories here, which is probably not as politically acceptable solution with the Chinese EVs as it was with the, with the Japanese car manufacturers. Um, it's also, you know, the, the U S the, I mean, the Shanghai auto show, which was concluded, I think last week, and there's been some reporting out of it. I mean, it was one of those things where like, it sounds like these foreign car makers were shocked at how basically the Chinese have just lapped them in mm. terms of, or not lapped them, but are just like miles ahead in terms of, EV technology, EV cars, EV quality, 
um, and is and also in terms of catering to consumer preferences in China. And so that's interesting, right? These companies, these foreign car makers have been in China for decades, and it looks like they completely missed the boat. Yeah. Right. Which is one of the arguments for why we can't like a company. Oh, we can't really decouple from China. We can't leave the China market because we need to be there to understand the trend so we can compete both in China and globally. And yet here you have these foreign car makers who are there who are basically like realizing that they're in deep trouble. All of a sudden. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Right. Well, but it- you know, when it comes to the EVs, sorry, the Chinese EVs, I mean, you're going to have, I think, and, and, and like I was saying, you know, I, I occasionally do my other podcast just where I talk to people. Um, I haven't done it in a while. I have one coming this week. Sorry for the self-promotion. But I am also, the next one I'm about to record is a guy, a, an old friend who runs a uh, consultancy around uh, Chinese auto industry, who is just the Shanghai Auto Show. He's in Detroit now. Okay. And we are going to really dig into this because it's fascinating how quickly the Chinese car industry has developed and how good it is. Yeah. And how blindsided a lot of the big foreign car companies are. And for the U.S., for example, you know, Tesla has had problems in China where when, say, Xi Jinping's visiting a certain area, Teslas are restricted from being in a certain radius because of concerns. Again, national security concerns that the Tesla will be, you know, basically turned into like the CAA spy vehicle that will be shipping back, you know, data and video of Xi to right. you know, the, that's the big server in Fort Meade, right? <laughs> yeah. The NSA headquarters. But so, you know, okay, fine, maybe it does. That's interesting that the Chinese security services think that way. So, okay, you're going to tell me that then someone in the U.S. who says, well, why would we allow the Chinese EVs that are all connected yeah. cars? You know, it's like, it's this like, is great. my you, version you already, of forgetting the make... four shoulds. <laughs> I'm underestimating <laughs> right. the, the paranoia that pervades the right. relationship but, but the these Chinese, days. But, but like that stuff towards Tesla, like, basically writes its own lobbying group advertising campaign in DC about why people, you know, you should block a Chinese EV in the U S I mean, people are freaking about, about, about this battery technology deal that Ford did with, with, with CATL, you know, like somehow, I don't know, maybe somehow you can stick something in the battery that suddenly wakes up and eats your car. I mean, that's joking, my question right? but, is like, what's like, the national security risk really? Right. And, the, and the Chinese are way ahead on batteries. I mean, this is the thing is, is and so the U.S. is trying to catch up and this is where we've gone too long. But, you know, there was a speech by the National Security Advisor last week, Sullivan, about sort of this new Washington consensus, high level, sort of more industrial policy. It's all about, you know, the U.S. is now playing catch up in some key areas, including around like clean tech and EV car technology. I mean, the Chinese, their state-driven industrial policy subsidies have worked. Yeah. And you look at the bigger picture with all of this, it's like, you'll see, it seems like metaphorically speaking, we've gotten a lot of headlines about decoupling is happening. It's happening now. The whole world needs to adjust. And then in that metaphorical article, there's a sentence or two in the body that's like, decoupling will be enormous enormously difficult in dozens of key industries yes uh, absolutely (laughs) and it sort of feels like the emphasis should be reversed a little bit because it just when you look at the realities of all of these different industries um it's pretty striking how ingrained the symbiosis has been over the last 20 years you hear the eu talking more about de-risking you had the national security advisor sullivan last week using de-risking not really not the coupling and I think, you know, it's sort of trying to talk about we want to make sure that we're not so reliant in key areas on China yeah. without sort of going all the way. I think on the from a Chinese policymaker perspective, it's the same thing. 
So they're not fooled that this idea that they're, you know, and, and that's why in many ways the Chinese are proactively decoupling. Mm-hmm. They're both proactively decoupling as well as proactively trying to find ways to bind foreigners even more tightly into the PRC supply chains. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about them. They have a strategy. They actually, in the system. they actually have plans, right? Where we have like, speeches ideas rhetoric uh, committees um all yeah a lot of op-eds uh (laughs) but uh all part of the fun here on sharp china uh all right well on that note let's come back next week and please tell me who you're talking to on the cynicism podcast i always love the episodes of that podcast so So this week is uh tanya brannigan who Used to be the Guardian correspondent in China. She's now an editor at the Guardian. She wrote, she's written a book about the Cultural Revolution and memories and people, sort of people who survived the Cultural Revolution and how they remember it and how they move on from from the from the Cultural Revolution. And um, it it actually we have a I have a personal connection because um, she ended up she wrote an article a few years ago about a art exhibit, um, a guy who did portraits of people who various people who had different roles or different trauma on the cultural revolution. And um, in that art exhibit was my wife's uh, father uh, and her grandparents. Wow. Um, and so that's how Tanya and I got to talking. And then she started digging and decided this was an interesting sort of area that she could write a book about. It's a really good book. I got to read it last year. That's awesome. I can't wait to yeah. hear the podcast. If you're a Stratechery subscriber, you'll have to subscribe to Cynicism. No, no, no. It, it's, it's subscribe to this. My podcast, I, it's free. It'll be oh, free. Okay, good. Yeah, be free. a free subscriber. Well, and yeah. if, you like, if you like very good, educated British voices, you'll love Tanya. She oh. sounds much better than I do. <laughs> love a good British voice on a podcast. <laughs> um, yes. Well, you should all be subscribed to Cynicism regardless. Or if you're subscribed to Cynicism, subscribe to Stratechery. Stratechery, yes. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And- Especially, and, and the last bit, and we didn't get to it, there was a question about like M&A and approvals. And you guys on the Sharp, Sharp Tech podcast this week had a very spirited discussion about the how the Chinese are holding up Intel's acquisition of Tower Semiconductor. Yep. And it's very it's a it's worth listening to. It's a very good discussion. Yes. Well, I may follow up with you on that. And, point and the Chinese the, the Chinese blocked the uh, Qualcomm tried to buy NXP. They blocked that a few years ago. This is not a new thing. Right. It's a, a weapon that may be wielded more than ever over the next 10 years or so as things devolve. But we're not devolving here on the podcast. No, Another just... enjoyable episode. And um, on that note, let's come back next week and please give my best to Tashi. I hope he can steal a pizza or something uh, over the next couple of days. <laughs> not a problem. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>